So I'm talking with uh, Dr. Liz Mumford, who is uh, the president and CEO of the Rimland Center in Lynchburg, Virginia. She has a general pediatrics practice uh, called Advocates for Children, and she also uh, has uh, another part of her practice that is devoted to children with autism and uh, neurodevelopmental problems. She has been in the functional medicine field for many, many years and uh, has many, many awards. And, and I really want to talk with you, Liz, uh, about a few uh, questions, obviously related to pediatrics. The first I want to uh, get your uh, expertise on is there is such an emphasis on the first thousand days of life, of course. And we know that children born by C-section have an increased risk for all sorts of issues arising from a disordered microbiome or potentially disordered microbiome. They, that puts them at more risk, of course. Could you talk a little bit about how you address uh, uh, this kind of child's uh, microbiome uh, that comes into you and, and things that you talk to the parents about uh, uh, along those lines? Yes, Dan. Um, it's a big issue now because in some parts of our country, C-section rates are as high as 33%. And when I was lecturing in Mexico once, I was shocked to hear that in Monterey, the C-section rate is over 90% because it's considered culturally a good thing to sort of schedule your child's birth date. So um, we always make note when kids are born by C-section. And the first thing that I emphasize is the value of breastfeeding. Uh, we know that children who are breastfed have significantly less risk for gastrointestinal illness leading to hospitalization in the first year of life, less risk of uh, upper respiratory infections and other type of uh, lung infections. We know that um, children who are breastfed typically have a few more IQ points than children who are bottle fed. And we know that certain chronic diseases, including some types of cancer and autoimmune diseases, are less in children who are breastfed. So the breast milk contains lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, which are the predominant organisms that we like to lay down in uh, the infant in the first year of life. There's some evidence that the microbiome you get in your first year is sort of the framework of what you'll have for the rest of your life. Not that you can't improve upon it, but it's very difficult to take a very dysbiotic uh, gut microbiome in the first year of life and make it uh, pristine. So we actually um, look at the potential for giving babies, especially if they aren't breastfed, probiotics. We usually start this at the two-week visit when it's indicated. The first two weeks, we really want to emphasize establishing breastfeeding. And we have uh, lactation educators we work with to make sure that we troubleshoot any latch problems um, or supply problems so that uh, we have the best chance to get uh, breastfeeding, ideally for at least a year. Um, the other thing that I am very interested in, in addition to giving probiotics when indicated, is avoiding antibiotics. Um, we know that even one 
course of antibiotics in the first year of life has significant effects on the microbiome. So to give the uh, best example, um, ear infections are probably about 70% viral. And so it is not necessary, or in my opinion, a good idea to treat every ear infection with the course of antibiotics. So we use the European method of diagnosing an ear infection, assessing the level of toxicity in the child, and usually not treating initially, but holding the antibiotics for 24 to 48 hours to see if the child will do well without them. Um, we overuse antibiotics uh, to a pretty horrifying degree, and I'm uh, part of uh, the pediatric campaign to try to not do that anymore. So I would say those are the top three things. Um, really working on breastfeeding, using an uh, infant probiotic that specifically has uh, the strains, multiple strains are preferred over single strain probiotics like Culturel, and then working on the idea of avoiding unnecessary antibiotics. Uh, so, Liz, that was a, a great thorough answer. Um, so, in the kind of the same question, uh, it sounds like similar answer, a child that you haven't seen before comes in at, you know, three or four, they've had multiple antibiotics. Are you doing, you're doing, uh, you are um, re-inoculating with probiotics at that time? Are you doing that for a certain period of time? You're obviously doing other things with a child that has had a multiple uh, antibiotics. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. If I see a child who's three or four years old and has had multiple antibiotics, um, I immediately want to work on restoring that gut microbiome. So one of the first things we'll do is talk to the family about what the child is eating. Unfortunately, in America, too many kids are eating this uh, standard or sad American diet with lots of uh, refined carbohydrates and processed foods. So the first uh, thing I want to do is try to get the child eating more uh, uh, meats or good quality proteins if they're vegetarians, really emphasizing vegetables. Most toddlers uh, eat between one and four vegetables and we would like to see them have at least five servings a day. And then really trying to cut down on the amount of refined foods and the amount of foods that have lots of dyes and preservatives in them, um, which tend to promote inflammation and contribute to dysbiosis. Um, we like to use probiotics that are formulated for children. Um, there are multi-strain probiotics that um, the ones we use are free of gluten and dairy and soy and um, things that are uh, irritating to the child's gut. Another unsung hero of this is Saccharomyces boulardii. Saccharomyces boulardii I think of as a good yeast that fights bad yeast, but it actually does so much more and there are uh, more than a thousand articles in the published medical literature about its value in working against uh, C. difficile toxin and in terms of enhancing secretory IgA. 
Um, most infections in children that they end up getting antibiotics for are either respiratory or gastrointestinal. So if we can enhance their secretory IgA, we can decrease the number of infections that they're having and therefore decrease the need for further antibiotics. And along those lines, we also work on enhancing the immune system so that they don't get so many viruses. Um, many kids are given antibiotics when they actually have a virus. And so we use things like trying to keep their vitamin D level between 50 and 80, um, uh, giving them vitamin C, ideally in the liposomal version, since that's well absorbed and doesn't cause diarrhea. Um, there's some data that things like uh, elderberry syrup and echinacea can be helpful. But the main uh, message to the parents is don't overreact to every fever that your child has and take them to urgent care after hours where they are more likely to be prescribed an antibiotic because those people don't have the kind of follow-up that um, a primary care physician would. So those are some of my tricks for um, how to deal with it when you've been dealt the hand of a child who's already got a lot of antibiotics on board. Uh, that was wonderful, Liz. I wanted to follow up on, you talked about uh, secretory IgA and Saccharomyces boulardii, which is, uh, you talked about it's uh, many studies showing elevations or it supports and elevates or improves immune system function in the gut. I've also, I'm also wondering if you use uh, things like arabinogalactans. I, I know there's quite a bit of literature on that. I've used arabinogalactans for that purpose, not only in children, uh, but in adults as well, because it's a great uh, prebiotic and also has been shown to increase secretory IgA, which were very, uh, you, you pointed out, is a very important marker. Do you use that or other prebiotics to increase uh, secretory IgA? Um, Dan, actually, I can learn something from you here because I have not used a lot of arabinogalactase, uh, galactoses, um, and uh, I do think that prebiotics are very important. We try to do that a lot with food. Um, we can get a lot of our kids to do uh, kombucha, or even a, a tablespoon a day of sauerkraut um, are tricks that we use. Some kids like to drink pickle juice, um, but <laughs> yeah. So uh, thanks for that tip, and I probably should look at doing it more in kids. So let's uh, shift focus a little bit and talk about, you all obviously have years and years of experience with autism and uh, children on, on the spectrum. There's um, obviously it's a very difficult uh, um, issue to deal with for both the parents clearly, but also for pediatricians and family physicians and and how there's obviously also not enough of you to go around. And so there are, of course, uh, we have a epidemic of, of these kinds of issues. And, and so for the family physician or the pediatrician who is not seeing a lot of children on the spectrum or hasn't diagnosed that, how, how might you kind of uh, talk through uh, what would be the first steps that uh, you think a pediatrician, a family physician might uh, do, or do you think they should just refer to somebody who sees that kind of child all the time? 
No, I think that we all went to medical school so that we could take care of our patients. And um, unfortunately, there are too many kids for pediatricians and family docs to just punt them. Uh, the first thing I would say is that early detection is important. So I would really encourage people at those well child checkups to go through or have your staff go through the developmental stages for the child especially with regard to language markers and social interaction markers. So things like, uh, does the child point to something around a year to 15 months of age and try to get the parent's attention for it? Making sure that they're saying mama, dada, and at least one other word around a year of age. Then I would recommend uh, doing the formal screening, which is called the MCHAT which uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends doing at 18 months or two years. I think you can actually suspect the diagnosis earlier, but that's just a one-page form where the parent answers yes or no to a series of questions. And if there's a trigger for concern, then the recommendation is to um, refer the child for further testing. And you can do that through various types of early intervention services or child studies that are varied from state to state. The thing I would discourage is this um, legend of, oh, boys just talk late. Um, autism is more common in boys than girls by a ratio of about 4.5 to 1. So if you're waiting until after two years of age for a boy to start talking, I think you have a real problem. Then in terms of actually intervening, uh, you know, beyond referring to the developmental services, I think that if you can fundamentally take care of um, the GI tract, the immune system, and sleep, you can actually vastly improve the vast majority of children on the spectrum. So with the gut, you're doing the same sorts of integrative and functional medicine strategies that we have all learned about. Things like removing things that are uh, precipitating inflammation in the child. Uh, many children on the, on the spectrum have problems tolerating either casein or gluten. And there are about five different reasons that casein might be a problem, which may be beyond the scope of today's talk. And several reasons for gluten problems that go beyond true celiac disease. But a good first step is to just really green the diet, make it as clean as possible, increase good proteins and vegetables, decrease junk food, and then um, you know look for anything that might be triggering. And I think every child with an autism diagnosis deserves at least a trial off gluten and dairy because sometimes these kids will vastly improve just with that intervention alone. Um, most of them have gut dysbiosis. So the judicious use of probiotics or Saccharomyces boulardii is also something that I don't think is beyond the scope of the average family doc. Um, working on the immune system in terms of identifying triggers to allergies and trying to balance the Th1 to Th2 axis. Most kids with autism have an impaired TH1 or cell-mediated immunity system and tend to be a little more uh, rigged up to respond in an allergic or autoimmune way. 
and so standard strategies to strengthen natural killer cell function and um, provide good building blocks and nutrition will help with that. So um, the biggest problem, I think, is not that family docs and pediatricians don't have sort of latent skills to do this. It more has to do with the way we practice medicine in this country where the average pediatric visit is now seven minutes. And that is, in my opinion, a travesty because you can't begin to really delve into the kind of history taking that it takes to look for antecedents, triggers, and mediators and to do the kind of parent education that it takes to work on the gut in a meaningful way. So uh, those are my initial thoughts, but I really wanna encourage uh, the so-called regular pediatricians or regular family docs to take a few kids and do some basic gut rehab and immune balance. And I think you'll be rewarded by the children improving and the parents being very grateful to you. I think that was a, a great response, Liz. And I will make a, a, a comment about, uh, as you of course know, at, at the annual conference, uh, you and Dr. O'Hara and Dr. Buckley, all very, very uh, skilled pediatricians are going to be talking about uh, just getting started and seeing children on the spectrum and, and what to do and we'll fill in some of the things that you skillfully gave gave uh, an overview of and so I'm encouraging people shamelessly to uh, to attend the annual conference as well. And I will tell you that Nancy and Julie and I are very excited about um, putting that together and we really hope to recruit more people who dive into this. It honestly, it, if you do the basics, you get the kids a lot better. I think many people are scared of it because they see us doing these very sort of tertiary interventions, but I get most of the kids better with the basics of working on their gut, their immune, their mitochondria, their metabolism, all of which we learn about in functional medicine. Yeah, I think that's a, a good, there are clearly uh, important uh, good first steps. And as you said, for many children, it can be very rewarding. And then there's a secondary and tertiary that that, that may not be what uh, a family physician or pediatrician is is going to go into, but they can, they can see a lot of children uh, in, just at that primary level and really help them. So I, I'm glad you, you answered that way. Um, I want to just maybe a couple more questions. One is you talked about, of course, uh, casein and gluten that are probably the top two uh, foods that uh, children and adults, I would say, have reactions to. I want to get into a little bit in terms of how you test for uh, children specifically with gluten sensitivities. You alluded to that a little bit. Do you do genetic testing uh, for that? Do you do um, IgG or IgE? Do you do a celiac panel? What, what, is, uh, what is your standard or is there a standard way in which you're assessing for uh, gluten either from a laboratory perspective or just as you also alluded to kind of putting them on a trial? So the mantra for us is that nothing is really standard because we're all about the individual patient, but here are some of the options. 
if I think a child um, has uh, symptoms that are consistent with true celiac disease, which is now around one in 100 children, but in the kids I see, it's probably more like one in 50 to one in 70 because of the population I attract, I will run a Prometheus test that not only looks at the inflammatory markers like tissue transglutaminase and the endometrial antibodies and IgA level, but also the DQ2 and DQ8 genetic testing. And that test will tell me, first of all, if they have markers of active celiac disease, and secondly, how, what their genetic potential is. And that could be you know, a 0.1 risk or as much as a like 35 times greater risk. So that can be very helpful in that case. Um, we can do uh, true gluten allergy testing. Um, we can test for the six most common allergens with classic IgE testing which will uh, lead us to be able to say that they're actually having an allergic type response to gluten. We can also do IgG testing in which um, we often get the most typical pattern of multiple, multiple IgG sensitivities, which to me is a surrogate marker for increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut. So in that test, it's not so much that I'm saying gluten itself is a problem um, in that regard, but that we need to really heal the leaky gut by doing things like giving omega-3s and giving zinc and having the patient on probiotics and avoiding the triggers so that uh, we avoid the situation in which we take out all those foods. And then the next time, if we haven't fixed the leaky gut, it's you know 24 other foods. But there's also this gluteomorphine and there's also a caseomorphine phenomenon where uh, so a lot of kids in the autism spectrum are deficient in digestive enzymes. And one of those is called DPP-4. That is the enzyme that helps you break down gluten and casein. And unfortunately, a lot of the preservatives that are used in our foods now are damaging to DPP-4. So is mercury, which was in childhood vaccines uh, in the 90s and has mostly been taken out, but still in a lot of the flu shots that are given. So we've got those two environmental factors that are impacting DPP-4 and therefore um, making it more difficult for certain people to handle gluten and casein. So for that, you can actually send urine opioid testing um, where you look for whether your particular child has elevated caseomorphins or gluteomorphins. Now, all of those labs cost money, um, some more than others. And um, so I would say that you don't have to have a lab reason to do a trial off gluten or casein in a certain family. The trick is that if, if you're dealing with one of these immunologic responses in children, you know, molecules matter. And if you don't take gluten out completely, you really don't allow that resetting in the immune system. And the Norwegian researchers who were the most skilled at this suggested that anti-gliadin antibodies could actually persist for at least three months and more likely even more than a year. So it is a long time for people to be very strict gluten-free. And you know, gluten is in Play-Doh and gluten used to be in stamps that we licked. And 
So it's not a matter of, oh, we're 90% gluten-free. That really doesn't hack it for an immunologic uh, response. So you're uh, uh, essentially suggesting at least a three-month trial to right. see if gluten is an issue. That's yes, I am. What I hear. Okay. So I, that's a, a wonderful, uh, thorough response. Thank you, Liz. 